From the ACLU, I'm Molly Kaplan, Director of Multimedia at the ACLU, and your host for this episode. President Trump's financial records and tax returns have been a recurring focal point since his election. Both the Manhattan District Attorney and various House committees are asking to see these records in order to conduct their investigations into potentially unlawful behavior. But the president and his attorneys claim both that Congress is overstepping its power in requesting that information and that the president of the United States should be immune to such subpoena requests. We now await decisions in two Supreme Court cases that could force President Trump's hand and require his accounting firm and banks to turn over business records and financial disclosures. Joining us today on the podcast to help break down the importance of these two cases is Steve Shapiro, an ACLU legend and former legal director who came out of retirement to co-author an amicus brief for one of these cases. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Molly. It's great to be here, and it's great to hear your voice again. Oh, it's great to hear your voice. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, you worked at the ACLU as the legal director from 1993 to 2016, but you actually joined in 1976. So you, you had quite the tenor. And I will say that your legend lives on. People still talk about the breakfast that you used to give at staff conferences, a very early morning sort of overview of the Supreme Court that people still talk about, Steve, because <laughs> you have such a way. Well, and I still think about the ACLU on a regular basis. And as I have been watching it from afar over the last three and a half years, I do have to say I am incredibly proud of the organization, the work the organization has done in what is obviously a very difficult time for the country and for our constitutional democracy. I think the ACLU has really risen to the occasion and um, it's doing terrific work. It really is. Well, it's certainly been an interesting time for the country since you left, and I was so happy to see you were back in the ACLU fold as a co-author of the ACLU's amicus brief that we filed for one of the Trump subpoena cases. And it turns out your son was a co-author. He was indeed. Uh, my son and I wrote this brief together. He is a civil rights lawyer in New York now, and it's the first occasion we ever had to work professionally together, and it was a blast. It was terrific. He did a great job, and he... I deserve all the blame, and he deserves all the credit for whatever in the brief. <laughs> Spoken like a like a truly great dad. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go into the case and sort of its implications, can you give an overview? So what we have here are three lawsuits, actually, that are all asking very similar questions. Two of them got lumped together into one case. So we have Trump v. Mazars, Trump v. Deutsche Bank, and then Trump v. Vance. Can you just give the overview of what these cases are? Sure, although I think you have actually summarized the issues very well, Molly. The dispute that is now before the Supreme Court rises from a series of investigations into the financial dealings of Donald Trump and his businesses. One investigation, as you said, is taking place in New York, where a state criminal grand jury is looking into possible financial crimes. And as part of that investigation, has served a subpoena on Donald Trump's longtime accountants, the Mazars firm, seeking his tax returns and supporting documents over a period of years. The second set of cases started in D.C. were three different congressional committees, the House Committee on Financial Services, the House Oversight Committee, and the House Intelligence Committee, also subpoenaed various financial documents, again, including Trump's tax returns from his accountants and from two banks, Deutsche Banks and Capital One, with which he has done business. The 
case involving the Committee on Financial Services and the Intelligence Committee were brought together, and the House Oversight Committee case was litigated separately. So you had two cases going on in in D.C., one case going on in New York, all of which have now been argued together in the Supreme Court. The documents that have been subpoenaed in all of these various cases, and this is critically important, are solely personal and business records pertaining to Donald Trump, his businesses, and his associates. None of the subpoenas are seeking any official presidential records. None of the subpoenas were served on Trump himself. None of the subpoenas require Trump to actually to produce anything. He has nonetheless gone to court claiming that he's immune from each of these investigations while he is president simply because he is president, and thus the subpoenas cannot be enforced. It's an extraordinarily broad claim that is inconsistent with the fundamental principle repeatedly reaffirmed by the Supreme Court that no one in our country, not even the president, is above the law. As far back as 1807, Chief Justice John Marshall, the most famous chief justice in American history, ruled that Thomas Jefferson could not refuse to comply with a subpoena in the treason trial of Aaron Burr. In 1974, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that Richard Nixon was required to turn over the Watergate tapes in response to a grand jury subpoena. And in 1997, the Supreme Court unanimously rejected Bill Clinton's effort to dismiss a sexual harassment claim brought against him by a former Arkansas state employee. The same principle applies here in our view. Donald Trump's accountants and his bankers have been served with a subpoena, and they need to comply. And... Before we sort of go into the the themes of the cases, which, based on what you said, seem to be presidential immunity and sort of an issue around Congress's power and a checks and balances question, can you just say why the ACLU weighed in on this? The ACLU is a civil rights and civil liberties organization. What was its stake in this? Well, I think what is at stake is the principle that our elected officials should be held accountable for their actions, and they are not above the law because they occupy high position in the country. And we have a constitutional democracy with an elected president. We do not have a monarchy in the United States. And the principle that every person is equal before the law, including our highest public officials, including the president, is a fundamental principle for the nation and for the ACLU. And so this is not a partisan issue for the ACLU. This is not the first time that the ACLU has gotten involved in a case where a president has sought immunity from legal process. We uh, filed briefs in the Bill Clinton case saying that his claim of presidential immunity should be rejected there, as it was unanimously. We filed briefs in the Nixon-Watergate case uh, saying that his claim that he need not comply with the grand jury subpoena to produce the tape should be rejected, as it again was rejected unanimously. We did not file in the Aaron Burr treason case because the ACLU was not around in 1807. It's a good reason. I want to dig in a little bit more into the presidential immunity component. In the lower courts, when one of the cases was being argued, Trump's lawyer, William Consovoy, told the judge that if Trump were to shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, and this is, of course, relating back to something that Trump had said um, while he was running for office, Trump could not be criminally investigated while in office. And I just want to play the clip for our audience to hear as well. I think it has to. And what's your view on, on the, the Fifth Avenue example? Local authorities couldn't investigate. They couldn't do anything about it. I, I think once the, a president is uh, removed from office, 
the lo any local authority. This is not a permanent immunity. Well, I'm talking about while in office. No. That's there, the hypo. There, I, I, Nothing could be done. That's your position. That is correct. That is correct. I think the position of Trump and his lawyers has been that the only recourse for presidential misconduct is impeachment. And until the president is out of office, uh, either because he serves out his complete term or he's not reelected or he is impeached, he cannot be subject to any other criminal process and certainly no criminal process brought by a local district attorney. And I think uh, the judges in the case, the judge who asked the question was properly appalled by the response. And I think the average American would be appalled by the response as well. But it's equally important to say that the grand jury subpoena in this, or the grand jury in this case has served the subpoena seeking these financial records. We don't know precisely who the grand jury is investigating because grand jury proceedings are a secret. But what we do know, um, because the DA has said this much, is that there are several people who are subject to the investigation. Donald Trump may or may not be one of them. That has not been publicly revealed. And so the immunity that Donald Trump is claiming from the grand jury subpoena in New York is not only interfering with the potential investigation into illegal conduct that may or may not involve the president himself in his private capacity, but it's also shielding other people who may be the subjects of the investigation and preventing the grand jury from acquiring the information it needs to determine if other people may have committed crimes. The president is a special case, right? Like he does have to be treated or she has to be treated differently. So how does the court sort of or what is the argument to sort of balance that, that while he is an ordinary citizen, the president is the executive branch? So how do we balance those two things? Well, I think there's a lot packed into that question there. But again, it's important to understand that the Supreme Court in this case is not being asked to decide whether the president can be indicted. It's not being asked to decide whether the president can be criminally prosecuted while he's in office. It's only being asked to decide whether he can be required to comply with the subpoena seeking personal records that may be relevant to investigation of his personal conduct and the conduct of others associated with him. Whether, if the result of that investigation turns out to be that there is probable cause that crimes can be committed, whether or not the president, while in office, could then be indicted for those crimes is a separate question that is not before the court. At this point, we're just in the stage of gathering evidence. And the argument that Trump's lawyers uh, make vociferously that there's a special danger in allowing state prosecutors to subpoena the president's records, even if they are only personal records and not official presidential records, because we live in a hyper-partisan time and there are 2,300 local prosecutors around the country, all of whom could besiege the president with harassing document requests. Uh, the short answer to that, I think, is it hasn't happened. This is the only uh, investigation that is ongoing by a local prosecutor, and there's a reason for that. Local prosecutors cannot begin criminal investigations unless there is evidence of criminality in the district where they have jurisdiction. And even for a president like Donald Trump, who has far-flung business interests, that eliminates the vast number of local DAs around the country who have no connection to Donald Trump or any of his various business 
enterprises. And the same claim, interestingly, was made even more strongly by Bill Clinton when he was sued for sexual harassment by Paula Jones. He argued to the Supreme Court that if it allowed this lawsuit to go forward, he could be subject to harassing lawsuits, not by 2,300 local state prosecutors, but by 350 million people uh, in the United States. And the Supreme Court said that's very unlikely to happen. And if there's evidence that lawsuits are being brought in bad faith, purely for the purposes of harassment, we have faith that trial judges around the country, whether they are state trial judges or federal trial judges, will be able to deal with that effectively, as they do with frivolous lawsuits every day in all sorts of circumstances. So I think this is a scare tactic rather than a serious argument about you know, opening the barn doors. And so what I think I'm hearing in something that Justice Kagan also seemed to say is that that the president is a special case, but the protections are already in place to some extent. Yes, and, and every person who is served by a subpoena, if you and I were to receive a subpoena tomorrow, right, we would have the right to, to go into court and say the subpoena is overly burdensome, the subpoena is is not issued in good faith, the subpoena is an act of harassment, this is, subpoena is too broad in scope. Any of us could make those arguments. The president can make those arguments as well. But that's not the argument that Donald Trump is making. He's not saying, give me more time. He's not saying, ask for fewer documents. He's saying, you cannot investigate my private affairs at all because I am president. And as long as I am president, I don't have to follow the rules that everybody else has to follow. And that is the argument that the Supreme Court has repeatedly rejected. And that's the argument, frankly, I expect them to reject again in these cases. In terms of the congressional subpoenas, uh, the congressional subpoenas in this case were issued as part of probes by Congress into the question of foreign interference in the 2016 election and whether or not there is a need to strengthen the financial disclosure laws and uh, government ethics laws. Which seems like it has some relevance coming up Yes, in the immediate. If, in fact, there are gaps in federal law, or if, in fact, we need to put defenses in place to secure the integrity of our federal elections. The American people have a right to know that now, and Congress has a right and responsibility to act now and not to wait, allow those problems to fester for four more years and potentially affect yet another election cycle. We've already talked about Clinton v. Jones, but the Supreme Court also weighed some of these issues around the Nixon case, around Watergate. Can you tell us what was similar, what was different, and why that precedent is also relevant here? Well, if anything, there was a stronger case for presidential immunity in the Nixon-Watergate tapes than there is in this case, simply because in the Watergate tape case, what the grand jury was seeking was audio tapes from the Oval Office involving actions by President Nixon in his capacity as president. Here, as I said, there is no request for any documents that are in any way related to the president's official actions as president. All the documents being sought are documents being sought from him in his personal or business capacity. And if we're going to protect 
the presidency at all. Uh, the argument for protecting the presidency from investigation is strongest when the investigation is actually looking into the presidential conduct and not when it's looking into private personal conduct. That makes a lot of sense. But nonetheless, in the Watergate tapes case, the Supreme Court unanimously said, even though the, what the grand jury is seeking goes to the very heart of what was being discussed and going on in the Oval Office by the president in his capacity as president, right? He has to produce the documents if the grand jury has subpoenaed them. Right. So that precedent does not look good for the case that Trump is making. No, it was, it was a much stronger case for President Nixon than it is for President Trump and President right. Nixon lost unanimously. Right. On the issue of immunity, I wanted to ask, the word immunity has come up a lot recently in light of the protests around the death of George Floyd and the issue of how hard it is to hold police officers accountable because of something called qualified immunity, which makes it really hard to prosecute police officers. But in your tenure at the ACLU, you dealt with the issue of government accountability and being able to hold government officials accountable in the work that you were a part of regarding national security and being able to hold government officials accountable for acts of torture and other misconduct. How do you think about sort of accountability and the importance of being able to hold government officials accountable while they're in office, but even beyond that? Like, how do you sort of weigh up the larger question of holding government officials accountable? Yeah, I think that as you say, there are a series of different immunities in the law that apply to different government officials under different circumstances. And in a legal sense, they can raise different issues. But in a broader sense, the effect of any immunity is to frustrate two things. It is to frustrate the ability to, first of all, uncover the facts and see whether government officials have, in fact, abused the authority that has been vested in them. Because immunities are generally immunity from trial, not just immunity from punishment after trial. And so if you can't have the trial in the first place, you can't find out what happened. And then the immunity frustrates the ability of those people who may have suffered it hands of government abuse to achieve a redress for those abuses, to receive compensation for those abuses, to receive, in some cases, just an apology for how they were uh, mishandled by government officials. And I think what is going on in the broader society and what we are seeing now with the protests that have been taking place in the country over the last couple of weeks and the legal discussion that is going forward about qualified immunity for police officers in excessive force cases is that this balance between learning what happened, compensating people who were being wronged while still allowing government officials to do their jobs without fear that they're going to be subject to burdensome lawsuits, that, that somehow that balance has gotten out of whack over the last several decades. And it has tilted too much in the direction of protecting government officials and too little in the direction of recognizing and protecting the rights of people who are abused by government officials. And that there needs to be not necessarily an elimination of all immunities, but a recalibration that levels the playing field a little bit more. And so if Donald Trump were to win this case, for example, that's the end of it, right? The inquiry stops. Too often in excessive force cases involving the police, a claim of qualified immunity ends the case at the very, very beginning before there's even been any serious effort to determine what actually went on, let alone 
whether or not there ought to be compensation, again, for the victim of the police abuse. And in the national security cases uh, following 9-11, it took us in some cases a decade to find out what actually happened and what was done in our name and the torture that took place in violation of all of our norms, uh, domestic, international, and moral. And I think we're going to see a readjustment of that balance, and, and the Trump cases may be part of that. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like the balance is important here, both that there is some level of protection, but also that there is accountability and that people in office know that there's accountability, that they don't feel this umbrella immunity around everything that they do. So completely agree. One issue that we haven't really touched on, and I, I want to touch on in relationship to the congressional subpoenas, is the question that Trump's lawyers or the argument that Trump's lawyers raised against the House's subpoenas, which is that Congress's underlying motive was a witch hunt to catch Mm -hmm. Trump in a criminal act, and that apart from these cases, it does seem like it's an important point that subpoenas not be weaponized um, as a way to sort of have political battles and to attack your opponent. So what do we say to that argument? Well, I think in the abstract, it is correct. Correctional subpoenas should not be weaponized. They should not be used to engage in witch hunts. And we saw that happen all too frequently, for example, during the McCarthy era in the 50s. And the the Supreme Court ultimately placed limits on the ability of Congress to go after individuals right, for reasons that were unrelated to any legitimate legislative purpose, simply because some senator or some representative or some committee in Congress decided to target a political enemy or a scapegoat, whatever it may be. And it's important that there be limits on the ability of Congress to do that. I think the argument that Congress has exceeded those limits in this case, however, are very, very weak because the subpoenas that were served by each of the three committees uh, seem, at least to me, to be clearly pertinent to a relevant legislative purpose, which was the standard that came out of the McCarthy era cases. Whether, as I said, that purpose is investigating foreign interference in the 2016 election and what could be done to improve election security in the future, whether it is related to the need to enact new laws or strengthen existing laws requiring financial disclosure and setting ethical standards on how government officials need to behave while in office. All of those are entirely legitimate things for Congress to be thinking about and legislating on. And so long as these subpoenas are relevant to those purposes, which they appear to be, uh, then they meet the standard that the Supreme Court has satisfied. And they're not part of the witch hunt. They're part of the legislative process, the system of checks and balances, and the responsibility of Congress to engage in oversight of the executive branch, including the president. As we wrap up, I'm sort of curious to have you walk us through what's at stake if there's a loss for each case. So for the the House subpoenas and then the Manhattan District Attorney subpoenas, sort of walk through what it would mean if we lost one and the other. Well, I think it depends, as it so often does, on what a loss looks like. I think if the court were to say as the president's lawyers have argued in the New York case, that the president cannot be subject to any criminal process, which simply in this case, as I said before, means a subpoena. It doesn't mean charges, indictment, or trial. can't even be subject to a criminal subpoena, even if it relates to other people, not simply himself. 
I think that that would be a very significant loss and a repudiation of 200 years of precedent, and one that I think is frankly unlikely in this case. If the court were to say the president can be subject to a subpoena, but the trial court needs to take into account the fact that it is, after all, the president we're dealing with and uh, look a little more closely at whether this subpoena is as narrowly drawn as it could be and whether it is requesting too many documents and whether everything that is being requested is really necessary to the grand jury's investigation. So go back and take another look and see if you can kind of reach some compromise here. That, I think, would be a, a much less consequential decision by the Supreme Court. Likewise, in the congressional subpoena case, if the court were to adopt the broadest argument that the president's lawyers are making, which is to say that there is no legitimate legislative purpose here because Congress has no ability to regulate or control the behavior of the president because the president is the head of a coordinate and equal branch of government and therefore above scrutiny, above regulation by the Congress. And since they can't regulate his conduct, there is no legitimate legislative purpose into inquiring about his conduct. That, I think, would, again, be a very, very serious loss that would dramatically alter the balance of power between these two co-equal branches of government. If what the court were to say in a decision for Donald Trump is Congress needs to do a better job of articulating the relationship between these subpoenas and the legislative purpose that they have claimed they serve. That connection needs to be established more clearly than it has been in this record. That would be a loss, uh, but not nearly as serious a loss. How important is it that there's an upcoming election? Do you think that the justices are weighing the fact that this could put the foot on the political scale in one direction or another at all? I think the justices are always very conscious of the fact that they operate in a political environment and a political context, and maybe now more than ever. Having said that, I don't think it's going to have a tremendous impact upon the way they decide this case. For one thing, if Trump's accountants are required to produce his tax returns and supporting documents to the New York State Grand Jury, they're going to be subject to grand jury secrecy. Nothing is going to be publicized between now and November, I don't think. There's going to be any public revelation that, that uh, in and of itself is going to change the way people vote. The House records could potentially be public, whether or not you know anything actually gets produced between now and November. That remains to be seen. Based on what you say, do you have any predictions of which way this is going to go? It, it sounds like you think, at least in the Vance case, the Manhattan District Attorney case, that a win is possible. Well, I think it's a hazardous business to predict what the Supreme Court will, will, will do always. But having said that, I would be very surprised if the most extreme claims that have been made on the president's behalf in this case, that he is immune from any subpoena issued by any state DA anywhere under any circumstances, as long as he is in office. I'd be very surprised if the court accepted that argument. And likewise, I would be very surprised if the court accepted the argument that the president is beyond regulation by the Congress, and therefore Congress has no legitimate 
interest in legislating concerning the behavior of the conduct of the president and therefore these subpoenas are invalid. I'd be very surprised if they accepted that argument. So the claim of total and absolute immunity, I'm a king, not a president, I don't think the Supreme Court will accept that. Whether they look for some middle ground that says because this is a president, we need a little stronger showing both in New York and in D.C. in order to require the president's accountants and banks to produce the documents, that, I think, you know, might be a closer question. Well, we will find out soon enough. Steve, thank you so much for being here and for doing this podcast. And it was so fun to be able to talk to you again. I've missed you a lot. Thanks a million, Molly. And keep up the good work and say hi to everybody for me. I sure will. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty, wherever you get your podcasts, and rate and review the show. Until next week, stay strong, everyone.